Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen and I'm a co-host on the Southeast Asian Studies channel. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by Christian Lentz, who's an Associate Professor of Geography at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the author of Contested Territory, Dien Bien Phu, and The Making of Northwest Vietnam, published by Yale University Press in 2019, which was recently a very well-deserved winner of the Harry J. Bender Prize for the best first book in Southeast Asian Studies awarded by the Association of Asian Studies. It's a highly original monograph drawing on some extremely deep research, much of it in the Vietnamese National Archives. Christian, welcome to the Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thank you, Duncan. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dien Bien Phu occupies a place in the collective imaginary of Vietnamese history as the site of the final battle between French forces and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam in May 1954. Many listeners will know this already, but after that, Vietnam ends up being divided at the 17th parallel into what becomes, for the next couple of decades, two countries, quote-unquote, North and South Vietnam. Battle marks the end of the First Vietnam War, if you like, the French War, and then frames the onset a few years later of the Second Vietnam War, the American War. I'll have to ask listeners who are well aware of this to forgive me at this point, but to set the scene for this conversation, we need to highlight the fact that Dien Bien Phu, which literally means border post prefecture, is nowhere near the 17th parallel, which is just north of Hue, as in fact only just inside Vietnam's modern borders. It's practically in Laos. Mm-hmm. So Christian, perhaps we could start there. This might look rather like a history book, but you're in fact a geographer. So where is Dien Bien Phu exactly? Well, that's a that's a great question, Duncan, to start with. It's just l- merely locating Dien Bien Phu for me became one of these exercises that was quite analytically useful. I traveled there first when I was studying the Vietnamese language in 2004, which happened to be the 50th anniversary of what in Vietnamese is called the Great Victory. And so I visited this place and realized, having taken an airplane there from Hanoi, that it was very different and different, not mm-hmm. just topographically. And we're talking mountains versus lowlands, yeah. Sweden agriculture versus wet rice agriculture, but also ethnically. It's not the kin Vietnamese place you see in around mm-hmm. Hanoi. It's Thai, it's Hmong, there's Kumu people, very diverse um, ethnically. And mm-hmm. also in terms of just distance, it's much, much closer to Laos than it is to the sort of heartland of Vietnam. Yes. And so that introduction showed that something was interesting, right? I mean, there was something about this place being on the edge of Vietnamese territory, as the name suggests, Dien Bien Phu, as you said, means border post prefecture. Mm -hmm. 
but it was central to Vietnamese history. And so that became a sort of puzzle for me. It was thinking about how did this place that is so far out there that doesn't look or feel Vietnamese, particularly in the 1950s, how did that become so central to Vietnamese national history? Yeah, and having climbed Mount Fancy Pan, I can also mm. testify to the fact that much of this region is extremely close to China. Burma is also not very far away. It's mm-hmm. really a, a very unique part of the world. I guess readers clutching for explanatory keys to unlock this part of the world might easily grasp uh, this idea of Zomia that's been popularized by Jim Scott that comes mm-hmm. readily to hand. Is it useful to think of this northwest region as some sort of anarchic upland area, home to fiercely independent communities and beyond the reach of states and bureaucracies? I think I, I can say I was very lucky to be thinking and writing about this place when I was. I will be honest, full disclosure, I'm a student of Jim Scott, so I yeah. studied with him at Yale in 1999 to 2001 when I was in the School of Forestry at Yale. And so he and I were thinking about the similar things, even if he was taking it sort of perhaps one step further than where I would go. And so I found it very productive to think alongside Zomia and then to think critically and engage with those ideas. I will say I don't think of it as always an anarchic upland contrast Mm -hmm. to the lowland sort of Mm -hmm. state-making parts of Southeast Asia. But there is a strong relationship and perhaps a dialectical relationship that is useful, particularly when we talk about ideas of cultural difference. Right, because you do mention these kind of terminologies, but you always seem very reluctant to go into anything binary. Again and again mm-hmm. in the book, we get the sense of, well, we can invoke this binary here, but actually, let me tell you, it's it's complicated. Could you say something about that? <laughs> I'd be happy to. And I think what was useful for me was you know, thinking alongside Zomia and reading this criticisms that came out. And of course, it's not just Jim Scott. It's also Willem right. Skendel. It's Jean Michaud. Going to the Asian Studies meetings, I happened to see Leif Janssen give a very critical response. And then thinking about others like Victor Lieberman and these sort of critics of Zomia, who are deeply engaged with the idea and thinking about its relevance. And I think in a sort of big picture way, it was very useful to think about ethnogenesis as something arising from this dyadic relationship, if you will, that kind of binary. But once I started to get into the archives, it became much more complicated. And I think in particular, the breakthrough I had was thinking about the Thai Muong in upland Vietnam. And that became a real hook for me, a sort of middle space, if you will, between the uplands and the so-called lowlands, because you start to see that the Muong itself is enmeshed in these relationships. And Given the longer history of this particular region, which following scholars like Philippe Le Fayer, mm-hmm. I call the Black River region as a way to yeah. get out of immediately calling it Vietnamese. One comment I got, and this is not something I had really thought about, and this comes from a colleague who asked me a question about, well, her observation was this book tells a story about the construction of Vietnamese territory by non-Vietnamese people. And mm-hmm. That was a really nice sort of summation, I think, of what I was trying to do and the intervention I want to make in Vietnamese studies, which is we have to think outside the Red River, outside of Hanoi, outside of Saigon, outside of the areas that we conventionally associate with Vietnam to understand its construction more fully. And so I think that that also explains my interest in deconstructing this idea of ethnic minorities because it puts them on the outside rather than at the center of the story of Vietnam's Yes, and as a Thailand scholar, as soon as you start talking about Ban and Mueang, I feel very much at home uh, in the conversation here. 
one thing that comes through very clearly from the book, as you've already mentioned, is how relatively few uh, kin people there were living in this region in the early 1950s. Can you sketch out who the, if you like, the contending claimants to the Black River border region were during this period? Sure. I mean, this goes right back to your introduction and thinking about the the Vietnam Wars or the Indochina Wars. Mm -hmm. You know, the story begins in 1945. In 1945, is when you see, and this is something that Peter Zinnemann writes about in his book, The Colonial Bastille, the French maintained a prison in Sun La. And Sun La is very much in this region. It's one of the main provinces along with Lai Chou, along with Lao Cai, where you find Mount Fancy Pan, yes. and Ian Bai. And so thinking about this prison, the location was chosen deliberately by the French to isolate kin political prisoners from mm-hmm. Hanoi and from their downstream networks. And What happened in 1945 during the Japanese occupation was this area or these prisons that were the site for deep political organizing, basically the construction of cells within cells, Communist Party cells within the prison themselves, started to pull in the Thai, in particular, this one gentleman named La Van Mui, Mm -hmm. who is a local Thai elite from Huan Chou. And he starts to be sympathetic to this recruitment for a variety of reasons. I mean, he's very anti-colonial. He becomes suspicious of the French project. And you start to see the sort of breaking down of this simple relationship of so-called Vietnamese versus French. There are other players at work here. And so over the next 15 years, what you start to see is a very deliberate kind of organizing by cadres in Vietnamese Canvo who are employed by the party or the government in some way, that is the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, to go into these highlands and recruit local Thai cadres. And so La Van Mui is sort of emblematic of a number of elite Thai locals from Sun La, from Lai Chou, and there's a whole um, number of them who are deeply sympathetic to the revolutionary anti-colonial cause. And they have many reasons for being so. Sometimes it's because they fully believe in the revolutionary program, or other times they're simply deeply opposed to the local Thai leaders who have been recruited and hired by the French colonial state. And so you see this mixture then of local and personal disputes mm-hmm. being mapped onto these larger political and geopolitical concerns. So to answer your question in brief, you've got these Thai political cadres mm-hmm. who are organizing locally, at first among their own people, among Thai peasants in the Muang, but then over time, as they become more and more kin cadres, and especially after the Northwest campaign, which unfolds in late 1952, you start to see many more in cadres, government officials, and soldiers. It's not a guerrilla warfare any longer. It becomes a sort of battle mobile warfare. And so you see the entrance of many more kin people. And then by 1954, you've got a sort of onslaught, if you will, of the people's army. So it's an increase over time of the number of kin. But all along, you see them working very carefully with local Thai cadres. And I think they are the crucial brokers in this larger story. Right. Yeah, clearly they're the most important group. And of course, the whole notion of an ethnic minority is what you talk about in the book, the sense in which the Vietnamese start to construct the notion of what it is to be an ethnic minority. But the Thais aren't the only players in the region either, are they? There are other quote-unquote ethnic minority groups or groups that later become designated as ethnic minorities. That's absolutely right. Yeah, let me emphasize that, of course, the Thai are only one among many different Mm -hmm. people, culturally and ethnically different people in this region. And ironically, as this area is constructed, they become the majority. 
right? So I want right. to break down that sort of minority, majority yeah. distinction. But the Thai have historically been the lords of the Muang, the Chao Muang mm-hmm. in this region. And the French recognized this very early on and organized them into the Siptong Chao Thai or the 12 Thai chiefdoms. Yeah. And those elites and those communities are located primarily in the Valley principalities. But then as you move up into the mountains themselves, you see these different communities. And so it was very helpful for me to think about Laos and the ethnic stratification, altitudinal stratification, if you will, in Laos, because you see very similar patterns in this part of Vietnam, where the Midlands, you see the Khmu, and the Khmu, of course, have this very interesting relationship with the Thai, in many cases, a kind of servitude, but very close culturally to the Thai, even if they're speaking different languages, practicing different agriculture. And then you go higher up into the highlands and you, you see more Hmong, more recent Hmong settlers living on the ridges and the mountaintops, as well as Zhao or Yao or Mian mm-hmm. people alongside them. And so there is this very diverse place. And the thing I want to emphasize here is you're absolutely right. How they became constructed as minorities and mm-hmm. ethnically different is very much a part of the story. And so I never wanted to take for granted that there were, quote, ethnic minorities because right. they are actually a majority in this part of the country. Right. Well, what comes through quite clearly is also the complexities of the relationship between the Thai as the largest group in the region and these other groups that often occupying more upland land, in, essentially, they've lowered down the food chain in terms of power and access to resources than the Thai. So there's a pre-existing hierarchy that both the French and the DRV are finding themselves encountering very strongly. That's right. That's right. There is a, a very strong pre-existing hierarchy. And I think that becomes very clear through these documents. What was fascinating to me and one of the breakthroughs I had was you know, when I was working in the archives, just stumbling through these historic documents, not even really understanding the picture, was reading these very long, sometimes 30 or 40 page reports mm. by officials like La Van Mui. I mentioned him before, mm. but he was a cadre in Sun La. Basically, his reports from 1948-49 are these moments when he has to explain to his superiors in the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and in the Workers' Party at the time, what's happening, what this landscape looks like socially. And so he is taking great pains to say, okay, well, here we have this kind of ethnic stratification, if you will, and these hierarchies. And so thinking about that, putting those early documents into dialogue with the later documents, you see that he did this very important explanatory work as someone who who knew that landscape very well and was able to translate it into a language that his fellow cadres could understand and then act on over time. Right. I mean, something that comes through very clearly, again, from your account, is the way in which some of these figures are torn between two competing powers. At this point, we know now who's going to win, but presumably it was much mm-hmm. less clear then. <laughs> so you have the French and the DRV side both demanding loyalty and trying to co-opt or otherwise these local Thai elites into their networks and and engage them in their particular side of the struggle. How do they decide what to do? I mean, it's very reminiscent to me of the work I did in in Batani, where you see Malay Mm. Muslim elites torn between separatist aspirations and wanting to collaborate with the Thai state. It's a classic kind of problem for people in these intermediary categories. How do they handle that? (laughs) It's hard. I mean, no, you're absolutely right. And I think it's a very hard position. And so I'll go back to, again, one of these early documents, which were so instructive. 
multiple readings and deep engagement. I'm talking about 1949, 1950, when Lavan Mui is saying, okay, here is our situation, muang by muang, right? Or sort right. of county by county, <laughs> yeah. if you will. And he says, here's this guy, Lavan Pon. He is very skeptical, but nonetheless, he lets our cadre's work in his backyard. And he tells his peasant, over which he has quite a bit of control, work with the Viet Minh, but mm. don't tell the French. Right. Or you have these other, right? And it's, you also get to these sort of cliches where it's like, literally, he says, well, this place is French by day, but it's Viet Minh by night. And so right. there's almost a, a, you know, a daily sort of switch between who is in power. And so there was this deliberate outreach. They would work through persuasion, but they would also work through coercion and violence. And so there were assassinations, there were targeted hits and intimidation. And so all manner of tactics, if you will, to work with these or work against various Thai leaders is in effect. Some of what happens next, we sort of know, and some of it was surprising and unfamiliar. One of the things that came through very strongly in your account was the role that women played in the struggle around the final battle of Dien Bien Phu. Absolutely. And so I think this is one of the, I mean, I can back up a little bit. You're absolutely right. I mean, women were central to this battle, in short, because they were central to the local economy. And so yes. much of the story that unfolds is how was the People's Army and this nascent DRV state able to mobilize local resources mm -hmm. to serve this larger military objective. And so the 1952 Northwest campaign was this learning experience mm -hmm. where the people like General Zapp and his lieutenants realized that they could not supply their soldiers on the basis of long supply lines, because using a pedestrian army, the pedestrians themselves, mm -hmm. known as Zunkong or yeah. People's Workers, were literally eating up the food they had packed up mm -hmm. the highlands to feed the soldiers. And this became particularly clear in April 1953 when the People's Army takes a detour into Laos and threatens Luang Prabang. And so there's a lot of learning that happens along the way that makes the generals and the military uh, officers realize that we have to start thinking about local supply. And mm -hmm. so that in, that interest in finding local sources of food, rations, and labor, and opium, which is a part of the story, yeah. starts to change the dynamic. And that means tackling head-on, if you will, the fact that women are mm -hmm. the principal workers on the farm. This became a, a really interesting, again, a sort of nut to crack, where looking at pictures from that period, and there's lots of propaganda photos that come out from 1953 mm -hmm. and 54, and what is called the Great Dien Bien Phu Campaign, if you look at the workers, the local workers in particular, they're virtually all women. Yes. And so that's not something you see very much in the archives because there is this sort of generic or, if you will, abstract worker. Mm -hmm. But looking at the pictures was a clue. It's like, wait a sec, we're talking about women here. Right. And so that made me very sensitive and interested in finding out more about their role. Right. Partly because of the geographical conditions and the difficulty of getting supplies around, the engagement with the local economy becomes much more crucial than it would in a lot of conventional fighting. Absolutely. I remember very clearly this conversation I had. I was doing basically ethnographic fieldwork um, at the same time I was working in the archives. Mm -hmm. And so I had these local informants, local historians, if you will. I asked one, and he was a former official who could remember the battle when he was still a mm -hmm. child. And I asked him, I said, look, I've been looking at these pictures. It's because the men had all been drafted into the French army. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And that made me realize that, of course, there were already these pre-existing demands on men's labor. Right. But women had somehow been 
left out. And I think the DRV realized, aha, here is the untapped resource, if you will, that we can put to use. Right. I mean, the other really surprising twist in the story is, okay, the French lose after 1954, but it's not that everything then goes quiet uh, in this part of Vietnam at all. Peoples of the Northwest Mm -hmm. region don't passively accept rule from Hanoi. We get vampire stories, we get dreams of a just (laughs) king, and this bizarre period over the next few years when it seems that the peoples of the region are, you know, engaged in a very active quest for autonomy. That's right. And I think for me, this was one of, again, I guess another intellectual nut to crack. When I was working in the archives, there were reams, literally files and files under the heading Sung Don Vua, which, which in Vietnamese I translate as calling for a king. And so this idea, I was like, what is going on here? And many mm-hmm. of the documents were classified when I right. tried to access them, my first visit to the archives. But I still puzzled over it and wasn't able to write about it in my dissertation, but I realized something was happening here that I really wanted to learn more about. And so when I went back to the archive in 2012 for another deep dive, I really tried to focus on this era. And in short, the story goes, or what I was able to put together was the DRV and the People's Army was able to assemble this wide coalition, pan-ethnic coalition, to fight on behalf of the rising Vietnamese state and to beat the French. But what happens in its wake is that Many of those conscripts or volunteers, if you will, became disillusioned, I think, Mm -hmm. to uh, put it quickly, with what they had achieved. The promises that they had been told as sort of part of the revolutionary outcome just didn't materialize. And so you have conditions of starvation, even Mm -hmm. um, isolated famine in some of these areas as a result of drought and other kind of ecological change. That means the food was still scarce, people were still hungry. And in fact, all of the demands that came with this military campaign did not abate, but actually escalated. And you see taxation start to ratchet down. And taxation here is taxation in kind, so basically a portion of one's rice harvest. And in addition, the zunkong or sort of labor duties also start to increase, right? We start mm-hmm. to see rebuilding of local uh, government offices, for example. Mm-hmm. And many of those are expressed through these old relationships that are germane to the muang. And so the nut, the crack for me was, okay, if this was such a large pan-ethnic coalition, what happened afterwards? And so mm-hmm. the answer to that question became, it actually has everything to do with these Muang politics. Yes. The Thai and the kin had formed these relationships that were quite sturdy and that were built on some kind of mutual agreement about who would become the rulers, if you will, of this region, but that in many ways left out these so-called smaller ethnicities in Vietnamese mm-hmm. Um, like the Hmong and the Kamu, and they start to get upset in 1955 and 56. Yeah. You use this intriguing term, watching over, as well. I like mm. these various phrases that you use, and this is one that pops up a few times, to capture something of the relationship between Hanoi and the region. What exactly do you mean by watching over? So watching over is this, I'm very much inspired by my colleagues in Southeast Asian studies who want to take these local terms and theorize them. So this is something yeah. that we would call grounded theory, right? right. And so right. this idea that you mentioned of watching over, in Vietnamese, it's teo zoi or teo yoi. It becomes almost pervasive in the documents as of about 1953 and then continuing on from there. And so I started to think about what does this mean? And it literally means to watch over. And it's something that has positive connotations like 
you watch over your children, right? You make mm-hmm. sure that they don't get hurt. But it also has this other connotation that has everything to do with surveillance, like police mm-hmm. watch over you, not always to make sure that you're safe, but to make sure that you comply with, say, the various requirements for taxation and labor service. Mm-hmm. And so that starts to come into, in a very granular way, some of the documents that I was reading during the DNBN Fu campaign are basically teaching locals how to watch over their neighbors in a way that is all about making sure that the resources necessary to securing this victory are actually secured. And so that idea, I think, has a lot to do with state capacity, rising state capacity that continues through the end of the battle. Yeah. I mean, something else that you talk about a lot is the way in which the Vietnamese state has turned Dien Bien Phu into a metaphor, a set of lessons and mm. endlessly re-edited and recrafted national myth about the country's struggles and process of nation building. Can you talk a bit about how that metaphorical transfiguration of the battle has functioned for Vietnam? Absolutely. So, I mean, what's interesting to me is if you read General Vang Nguyen Zap's memoirs, right, they've mm-hmm. been translated into English by Lady Borton. They're also available in Vietnamese, and he's written quite a bit about it. And I think this, as a, a moment in Vietnamese history, there's justifiable pride in being able mm-hmm. to defeat this elite force from the European metropole in a fixed position battle. So that mm-hmm. is something that I don't want to detract from. But right. what's interesting is, of course, this starts to take on a meaning that is unmoored, if you will, from the place itself. And so this first became evident to me in reading these memoirs by Zap and others, who often have a section at the end of their memoirs called lessons learned. Mm-hmm. And the lessons learned are that we can make a Dien Bien Phu happen. We've done it right. before. We can right. do it again. And so that's right. where it sort of starts to become a metaphor, something that we can do elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. But there's a great deal of utility in this kind of idea, um, which is moving further and further away from the realities of what actually happened. That's right. <laughs> Let me turn the final sentence of your book into a question. Sure. What can scholars learn about territory by exploring the everyday labors involved in its construction? I mean, so I like that question in part because I guess as a geographer and, you know, I wasn't trained as a geographer. I became a geographer in part through circumstance. But Mm -hmm. I found that there was this very interesting debate about territory when I was hired at UNC. I mean, I have a background in sociology and, of course, Southeast Mm -hmm. Asian studies. And I was very interested in history. So this debate about what is territory was taking place at the geography meetings. And Stuart Eldon had this very important critique based on a Foucauldian reading of biopolitics, to put it quickly, about the idea that people are enrolled in a political strategy and territory becomes a tool, sort of exert a kind of control over people and bodies. And this a larger critique that builds on earlier critiques based on territory as a process, not a fixed outcome. And so thinking about the everyday labors and its construction really, to me, highlighted how complex it is. And if you will, never ending sounds sort of deterministic, but it's always in construction, right? So if we think about territory not as something given, which Mm -hmm. is all too often the case in, I think, standard diplomatic or military histories, but rather something that must be built and built through Mm -hmm. the labor of people then it becomes a much more interesting story, one that involves women, one that involves all of the forms of difference that we've discussed um, in Germaine to the highlands of Southeast Asia. And that actually explains a lot of the kind of misunderstandings and difficulties and unintended outcomes, including the calling for a king movement that really kicks off in the late 1950s. 
I was going to ask you a similar question, which you've sort of anticipated, but let me try this one as well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> which is, yeah, your core argument in the book clearly reaches well beyond the case of Northwest Vietnam. It's an argument that territory is never given. It's always contingent and part of a set of processes. And you also talk about this idea of cartographic anxiety, which I have another phrase mm. I rather like. Uh, can you elaborate on this idea about the contingent nature of territory? Absolutely. And so let me start by, by saying one of the things that I aim to do in this book was to sort of take seriously this idea of contingency. Yes. And of course, that's something that's a very a concept that is central to history, right? That when we think back to the past, I mean, it's very much like our present. Things that seem obvious in retrospect were for the historical actors themselves still, still to come, and they could not mm -hmm. foresee their future. And so one of the historiographic blockages or trends, if you will, or features, to put it that way, one of the historiographic features of writing about the First Indochina War and Vietnam more broadly is that 1954 serves as this bookend, right? Mm -hmm. Things either begin in 1954, such as independence or partition or the end of this war, or they end. That is, the war ends or mm -hmm. French colonialism ends and right. the like. So part of my goal in adding this chapter was to say, look, if we look across that historiographic bookend of 1954, we can see all kinds of continuities. So that was something that I aimed to do was to write across that. And you see as a result of the very same processes that led to the victory in May 7th, 1954, all of these unintended outcomes come immediately after. But no one had mm -hmm. written about them before because they are, if you will, they continue across that divide. Right. Yeah. So part of what you're doing is really challenging the <laughs> robustness of, of the periodizations that we habitually invoke in order to explain and to summarize very complex narratives. That's right. So to go back to your question, I mean, so what I'm trying to do in thinking about the contingent nature of territory is Dien Bien Phu in 1945, in 1952, in 1954, even 19... 55 to 1959 could have gone a very different way, right? It mm -hmm. could have been part of any number of different political configurations, be it French, even Chinese, or sort of break away from Vietnam in some kind of new region. And all of that was in the mix, so to speak, at that time. So I wanted to give each of those possibilities their due um, before going on with the outcome itself. Right. Where do you go with this, Christian? You've done this extraordinary book. Clearly, as we've said, it has resonance way beyond the particular case that you're looking at in Northwest Vietnam and the, the particular historical period you're talking about. How can you take these insights yeah, and these ideas that you have about the nature of territory in an, another direction? Mm. So I think there's two of ways that my work has sort of unfolded since this book. And one, I think, is to continue to think about this region itself. And I mean, it's a fascinating region. And I'm looking at a, a picture that's the background on my computer right now, which is the Great Sun La Dam, which while it was um, under construction in the early 2000s and 2010s, was the largest construction site in Southeast Asia. Full stop. I mean, it was 20,000 odd laborers were building this massive dam on the Black River. And it's only, of course, one of many dams that have basically turned this once thriving river, the largest tributary in the Red River into a lake or a series of lakes that back up all the way to the Chinese border. 
And so the conversations I've had with political ecologists and others about the transformation of this area into a productive part of Vietnam, and a productive in a sort of narrow sense that is amenable to state appropriation and sort of capitalist accumulation, I think has its roots in this era. So that's one way of thinking about it is how did Vietnam turn this area that could have gone any number of different ways into sort of productive hinterland um, that serves Hanoi and that serves the Red River Delta, largely through hydropower or rubber, Mm -hmm. or tea and coffee and other estate crops. So that's one direction I've been going. And the other direction is to think about how people wrestled with the eventuality and the sort of consequences of nation-state space or territory in the way that we think about it now. And so I've been thinking about this in relation to Indonesia, which, as you know, is a Southeast Asianist, has this revolution that happens at about the same time as the Vietnamese Revolution. And so thinking about these different revolutionary movements in relation to one another is something I aim to do. And I want to try and challenge the way that we tend to containerize our studies of the region according to the territory that is given as a result of these national struggles. Well, Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. And I hope that we've helped to boost interest in your award-winning book, of course, in the study of Vietnam's struggles to create and assert particular narratives of identity, but also these broader questions about the contested nature of what we understand by notions of territory. Well, thank you, Duncan. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to ongoing conversations with you and with our listeners. I'm Duncan McCargo, and I've been in conversation with Christian Lentz of UNC Chapel Hill, whose groundbreaking book, Contested Territory, Dien Bien Phu and the Making of Northwest Vietnam, Yale 2019, was recently awarded the Bender Prize by the Association for Asian Studies. You've been listening to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. 